Hello, and welcome to episode number four of Can of Corn. If this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. If you're a returning listener, welcome back, and thanks for coming back. So I have a number of interesting topics to get to today. I'm going to give a quick update on Major League Baseball's return to play plan as it stands right now. I'm going to talk about an interesting Pete Rose story that surfaced earlier this week in the Montreal Gazette. And I'm going to make a Hall of Fame case for Tim Hudson, who will be making his first appearance on the Hall of Fame ballot next year. And I'm going to talk about why he probably deserves more consideration than he'll probably get just by examining his career statistics and comparing them to other Hall of Fame pitchers. So a lot of interesting stories to get to on today's program. So I want to do a follow-up on a segment that I did last week where I talked about Major League Baseball's plan to scrap the traditional American League and National League setup for this year and simply realign teams to play based on geography. So for instance, the Yankees and the Mets and the Red Sox and teams in the Northeast would all play in one division because they're geographically close together. So that's still the current plan. And Commissioner Rob Manfred is set to present it to the 30 club owners on Monday. And then if the owners are happy with it, then Manfred and Major League Baseball will present the plan to the Players Union. They're targeting 80 games, approximately 80 games reportedly, and want to start the season the first week of July. Whether that's July 1, the 4th of July, still up in the air for what would be opening day. So it seems that the major sticking point will be money. Major League Baseball is going to propose a a pay cut for the players due to lost revenue from not having fans in the stands. But the head of the players union, Tony Clark, has essentially said, no, that's a non-starter and that the players won't accept pay cuts. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully the two sides are able to come to some sort of financial agreement and spring training will restart in mid-June with opening day that first week in July. Fingers crossed. Before I dive into this next segment, I would just like to briefly explain what a corked bat is. So simply, what a corked bat means is when someone, a baseball player or someone who works for the team, hollows out the inside of a wooden baseball bat and replaces the lumber with cork, which makes a bat lighter and easier to swing. Now, this is strictly prohibited by Major League Baseball rules. You can't use corked bats in games. Players use them sometimes for batting practice, but that's what a corked bat refers to. Earlier this week, a former Montreal Expos groundkeeper told the Montreal Gazette that Pete Rose had a clubhouse attendant cork his bats in 1984 when he was with the Montreal Expos. This was Rose's only year at the Expos, and he actually ended up getting traded later in the season back to Cincinnati where he finished his career. But the clubhouse attendant named in the article named Brian Greenberg was approached and asked for comment, and he just said that he wouldn't talk about it. So he didn't outright deny the allegations, just that he wouldn't talk about it. 
Now, this isn't the first time that Pete Rose has been mentioned in the same sentence as corked bats. In 2010, Deadspin published an article where they took a couple of Rose's bats that had been authenticated and put them through an x-ray machine. And you can Google it and make your own determination. Now, I'm not an x-ray tech, but I did Google the bats that Deadspin looked at. And it does look like there is something in there. Not sure if it's cork, but it looks like the bets may have been tampered with or altered, however you want to phrase it. So in honor of Mr. Rose, I would like to present the all-time corked bat team. Now, before I go any further, I would just like to note that the following segment is strictly satirical and that myself and the can of corn does not in any way condone cheating in baseball or in any other sport. But with that being said, the name of this fictitious club is going to be the Houston Corkscrews, and the manager is Alex Cora. The starting catcher for the Corkscrews is Robinson Chirinos. Now, it's important to note that he's never been accused, fined, suspended, or in any way been found guilty of using a corked bat. But in Game 4 of the 2019 World Series as a member of the Astros with in Washington— Something mysterious flew off of his bat his first time at the plate, and he put it in his pocket and continued with his at-bat. Now, he claims that it was a Major League Baseball sticker that was an authentication sticker noting that the bat had been game-used in a World Series, which, based on the tape, seems like it could possibly be believable. However, due to the Astros' known cheating in the past, including during last year's World Series, it's very possible that it could have been something more nefarious. So for that, and combined with the fact that no catcher has been suspended ever for using a corked bat, Mr. Chirinos finds himself as the backstop for the corkscrews. The starting first baseman is Norm Cash. He hit 361 with 41 homers and an on-base percentage of 487 for the 1961 Detroit Tigers. Cash would never again hit 300 in his career and never eclipsed the 40 home run mark, though he did hit 39 the following year in 62. Cash was never caught, though he did admit to using a corked bat throughout his career and, in particular, that 1961 season, which was his career year. So for that, Cash is the starting first baseman. Wilton Guerrero gets the nod at second base. For those of you who are wondering, Wilton Guerrero is the brother of Hall of Fame outfielder Vladimir Guerrero. So Wilton got suspended after he broke his bat in a game versus St. Louis in 1997. His bat broke and he was caught red-handed with a corked bat. The umpires threw him out of the game, and he was suspended for eight games, and he accepted his suspension. Over at the hot corner, we have Yankees third baseman Greg Nettles, who in 1974, in an at-bat following a homer, broke his bat on a single, and six toy bouncy balls came bouncing out of the broken lumber. Now, Nettles was ejected and later claimed that a fan had given him the bat, and he had no idea that it had been tampered with. But for the lame excuse, no excuse actually, and the waste of bouncy balls, Nettles is the starting third baseman. Chris Sabo gets the start at shortstop. It's important to note that Sabo spent the majority of his career over at third base, but for the purposes of getting Nettles onto the squad, Sabo shifts over to short, where he appeared in two games 
as a rookie for him for the 1988 Reds. But nonetheless, Sabo broke his bat in July of 96 on a pop-up to short versus Houston. His bat broke. The umpires looked at it. It was clear it was corked, and he was ejected and suspended for seven games. And the starting left fielder, I talked about him earlier, the all-time hit king, Pete Rose. Now, it's important to note, as I mentioned for Torino's earlier, Rose has never officially been suspended or fined or in any way officially linked to using a corked bat. However, due to the allegations that were made, he does still make this squad. I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone, but the starting center fielder from the Chicago Cubs slam in Sammy Sosa. Now, Sosa spent the majority of his career in right, but he did make 234 appearances during his career in center. And on June 3rd of 2003, Sosa was ejected in the bottom of the first in a game versus Tampa Bay at Wrigley Field after he broke his bat on a ground out and it was clearly corked. Sosa got suspended for eight games. It was later reduced to seven, and he served his suspension. In this case, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to Slam and Sammy for being willing to move defensively from right field to center so that we could include former Cleveland Indians slugger Albert Bell as the starting right fielder. In a game versus the Chicago White Sox on July 15th of 1994, White Sox manager Gene Lamont approached home plate umpire Dave Phillips after Bell had come up to the plate and told Phillips he thought the bat was tampered with. Phillips takes the bat from Bell and puts it in the umpire's locker room, and Bell has to use another bat. Now, during the game, Indians pitcher Jason Grimsley, who later admits this, snuck into the umpire's locker room and switched out the bats with another player's bat. So he stole Bell's bat and takes it back to the Indians' locker room because the team knew that Bell had been corking his bats. So after the game, the umpires come in, and it's clear that the bats have been switched out and that the real bat has been taken out of the locker room. So Major League Baseball investigates. They force Cleveland to turn over the original bat, which they do, It was then x-rayed in New York, and it was found to be corked. So Bell gets suspended. But the funny part is that Bell actually ends up playing for the White Sox in 97 and 98 and hit 79 homers over two seasons on the south side. I'm now going to make a Hall of Fame case for pitcher Tim Hudson, who I mentioned briefly during the opening of the program. Now, I'm not saying with 100% certainty that Tim Hudson is definitely a Hall of Famer, or if I was a baseball writer, that I would with 100% certainty cast a ballot for him. However, I am saying based on what I've read, it doesn't seem like Hudson will get a whole lot of attention or consideration when he appears on the ballot for the first time next year in 2021. And I believe if you look at his career as a whole and compare it to some other players, that Hudson actually deserves a lot more consideration and respect than I believe he's going to be given. So if you look at Hudson's career, and I'll go over it, 17 years from 1999 to 2015, 222 wins, 133 losses, a 3.49 ERA, 2,080 strikeouts, and he was a four-time All-Star. And the bulk of his career was spent with the Atlanta Braves. He pitched for them for nine seasons from 2005 through 2013. 
Now, I think the clearest comparison that can be made between Hudson and a Hall of Fame pitcher is when you compare Hudson's body of work to the late, great Roy Halladay, simply because they pitched in the same era. Hudson pitched from 99 through 2015. Halladay pitched from 1998 to 2013. So Halladay had 203 wins and 105 losses. Now, it's important to point out that wins and losses can be partially attributed to a team's performance, not just a pitcher's performance, because a pitcher can go out every night out, theoretically, and throw nine innings a shutout ball, and if his team doesn't score at least one run for him, he's not going to get the win. However, over an entire career, 16 years and 17 years respectively for Halliday and then for Hudson, who pitched the 17 years, it does tend to show did they keep their team in the game and give their team a chance to win if you look at it from a broad perspective. So Halliday had an ERA of 3.38 and 2,117 strikeouts. So very similar numbers to Hudson. However, Halliday did have two Cy Young awards. He did win two of those, and he did appear in eight All-Star games. Now, I think All-Star games and Hall of Fame consideration, I don't weigh that so much. Some writers do, some don't. So he had a few more All-Star games. But the point is, just looking at it from uh, bird's eye view, just looking at the statistics, Hudson and Halliday had very similar wins and loss totals. They pitched in the same era also similar ERA and strikeout totals. Now, again, I'm not saying that Hudson, that that necessarily puts him in the Hall of Fame. I'm simply stating that Roy Halladay was a first ballot Hall of Famer and considered one of the greatest pitchers of his generation. And therefore, because Hudson's numbers are so close to Halladay, I think that he probably deserves more consideration than it seems like he's going to be given. Now, I think a hudson Halliday comparison is fairly simple and straightforward because they did pitch during the same era. However, if you want to pit, compare Hudson's career statistics, his body of work, to that of another Hall of Famer who pitched in an era prior to his, you can go back and look at Catfish Hunter, who pitched from 1965 to 1979. Over his 15-year career, he went 224 and 166 had an ERA of 3.26 with 2,012 strikeouts. Now, Hunter, like Halliday, did win a Cy Young in 1974 as a member of the Oakland Athletics. Hunter went 25-12, and 12, had a 2.49 ERA in 318 innings pitched and 41 starts for Oakland. So I know it's really hard to compare pitchers from different eras. However, just for argument's sake, I am pointing out that Hudson's overall body of work does compare to Hall of Famers from different eras and well-respected Hall of Famers from different eras. And therefore, it's pretty clear to me that he should be given more consideration than it seems like he's going to be given when he appears on next year's ballot. And I'll wrap things up with On This Date in Baseball History, as I always do, and I'm recording on Sunday, May 10th. On May 10th of 1967 at Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia, in the eighth inning, Hank Aaron hit an inside-the-park home run off a future Hall of Famer and Philadelphia right-hander Jim Bunning in a 4-3 Braves loss. And this would be Hank Aaron's only career inside the park home run of his 755 round trippers. 
And on this date in 1909, Winchester Hustlers right-hander Fred Tony no-hit the Lexington Colts for 17 innings in Class D Bluegrass League baseball, and that's the longest no-hitter in professional history. Tony had one walk and 19 strikeouts on the afternoon. And Tony went on to pitch for 12 major league seasons. He debuted for the Cubs in 1911. He won 139 games, including a career-high 24 in 1917 for Cincinnati. So that'll wrap things up. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're staying safe, healthy, and well.